LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Graham Phillips, who joins us for a world-exclusive first interview about his latest book, Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge, The Living Libraries and Healers of Megalithic Culture. Stonehenge is just one of thousands of stone circles erected throughout Britain and Ireland for over three millennia from 3000 BC onward. How did this building tradition survive for so long over such a large area and with such complexity and uniformity when the people of the British Isles lived in separate, isolated communities and left no evidence of central leadership or obvious communication networks? Graham Phillips argues that these stone circles are evidence of preservation of ancient knowledge that held together a scattered society. With stones aligned to the sun, moon and stars, these ancient monuments enabled the precise timings necessary for practical as well as ceremonial purposes. He explains how the megalithic priesthood possessed knowledge well beyond their time and because they had no form of writing, developed phenomenal memory techniques to preserve their knowledge over many generations, resulting in a class of wisdom keepers that were the living libraries of their culture. Drawing upon the latest archaeological excavations and overlooked historical source material, Phillips reveals that the megalithic culture survived far longer than previously thought, and that the people who held it together were an enigmatic shamanic sect, ultimately called the Druids. Uncovering the secrets of ancient megalithic culture and the purpose of their mysterious stone circles, Phillips contends that all the evidence has now been gathered to unlock the secrets encoded in the stones. Hello and welcome, Graham, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much for having me on once more. It was almost three years to the day, actually. It was May 2016 when we did a show based on your book, The Lost Tomb of King Arthur. So how time flies. That was three years ago. It was, yes. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, it is. time is going much too quickly at my age. <laughs> well, today we're going to be talking about your latest book just coming out. It's entitled Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge, The Living Libraries and Healers of Megalithic Culture. Before we jump into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Well, my background originally was in journalism, but uh, around about 40 years ago, I was editing a magazine that investigated unsolved mysteries. And one of the mysteries I investigated at that time was the background to the uh, if there was any historical background to the story of King Arthur and it fascinated me and of course eventually I've written books about King Arthur but that then spread off into other things and I became a full-time author of books 
concerning everything from was there a real Robin Hood? What was the mystery about the life of William Shakespeare? Did he write his own plays? Other things such as uh, the, the, the search for the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant. And now it's uh, megalithics. Uh, megalithic culture, stone circles of Britain. Now, we're going to be using the term megalithic a lot. Uh, megalithic literally just simply meaning large stone. And there's other terms may creep in like uh, Neolithic, Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age. So just to set everything up for us, give us a little brief glossary of a couple of key things that people, if they're coming to this for the first time, that they need to know, you know, about timelines and uh, meanings. Well, the first civilizations in the world began around about um, 3200 BC, that's 5200 years ago, and they began in uh, the Middle East, a place called Sumer, which is now in Iraq, and you also got the Egyptian civilization coming, and uh, at the same time, you've got a civilization arising in India, but Around about that very same time, when the people of the British Isles were still in the Stone Age, in other words, they still used Stone Age implements, they didn't actually have, um, hadn't developed bronze or metalworking at that point, they started building the first stone circles, um, such as a very early version of Stonehenge. But Stonehenge was just one of hundreds of stone circles that were built throughout Britain and Ireland. Um, from around about 3000 BC up until for about 2000 years at least. And that civilization, the people who built the stone circles, mainly using Stone Age implements such as uh, bones for shovels, uh, animal picks, uh, animal antlers for picks, um, and just simple Stone Age tools, they were able to build these stone circles and they were called the megalithic culture after, as you quite rightly said, the large stone structures that they built. Well, we have a tendency when we use the term Stone Age to generalize about the people that lived throughout what was actually a vast expanse of time. And a lot of people's ideas are actually quite negative and pejorative. You know, we talk about cave men and what have you and as far as we know the megalith builders didn't live in caves but nonetheless you know these were people that were to all intents and purposes exactly the same as us in terms of their capabilities yes they were they the brain sizes were had been like ours are now for well they have been for about two hundred thousand years um and the megalithic people the stone age people in britain we're talking about only about uh 5,000 years ago. So, yes, they were exactly like us. I mean, you could take one of them from that period, uh, bring them into the modern age in a, in a, in a time machine, and they could just live an ordinary life like we, we do. Um, they, they had the brain capability, but obviously they hadn't had the technology that we've got. They uh, used, it's called the Stone Age because they primarily used stone implements like... Um, uh, stone axe heads and flint tools that they sharpened for knives and so forth. When digging uh, ditches and uh, holes for stones to be placed in when building the stone circles, they would use uh, shovels made from the shoulder bones of, uh, of oxes. Um, they would use uh, animal antlers for picks. 
and um and basically they they it it was with these simple tools that they were able to build these uh stone monuments the kind of buildings they lived in were well really what you would call mud huts i suppose they were a circle of stones built a, sm- a small wall and they were overlaid with um a roof of thatch or animal skins uh, and on top of that uh, turf to, so this is basically they were living pretty simple lives but they did have exactly the same intelligence as we have today now the time period that we're talking about loosely uh three and a half thousand years bc is that correct that is correct and we're talking about the British Isles only is what we're going to be discussing today. And for people who don't know, that doesn't just mean England, Scotland, Wales. That includes the whole entire island of Ireland, including what is now the Republic. And of course, there's lots of outlying islands as well. Now, if you look at a map of Roman era Britain, you know, just at the, the turn of the millennium there in the early years, AD, a map that's tribal, you know, divides the people up tribally, uh, include Ireland in that. Well, how far back does this go if we look at people like, you know, the Iceni or Brigantes or indeed the Celts? Where are their origins? And when you're asking, we go back to the, the very earliest point that you're dealing with in the book, asking who these people are and where they might have come from, it, it all starts to get very misty, doesn't it, at that point? Yeah, we know from the Romans what Britain looked like 2,000 years ago when they first started turning up. And we know that it was... Uh, inhabited by people known as the Celts and both Ireland and the whole of Britain were divided into perhaps as many as 30 or more separate small kingdoms. Now these people were in what is known as the Iron Age. They had iron implements. They lived in a much more sophisticated way than the earlier inhabitants that had built the stone circles. Um, They had iron farming implements. They had swords. They had interviews in battle. They, they lived in large hill fortifications on top of, um, on top of uh, high ground. They had huge stockades and, um, and embankments built to defend these settlements. So they were much more uh, advanced, if you like, technically speaking, than the people who had been building the stone circles. But these Celtic people um, only arrived in Britain around about the, the Celts that, we, that the Romans uh, met, if you like, first arrived in Britain about 700 BC. And that was well after these stone circles were being built. The interesting thing is that this whole period until the Romans came is known as prehistoric Britain because it's prehistory. In other words, it is before there was any written history. The Britons before the time of the Romans had never developed any form of writing of their own. So we don't really know what really happened. And it's down to archaeology to reconstruct it. Now, we do have historical research, um, historical writings that the Romans and Greeks have left behind about what the that Britain was like about 2,000 years ago. But we don't know what it was like before the Celts turned up. There's no writings. And that all has to come down to archaeology. And that period before the Celts turned up um, is basically the era in which these stone circles were being built way back 
to about 3100 BC. And that is the culture that was uh, originally Stone Age, but later Bronze Age. They had bronze weapons, bronze tools, but simpler than simpler than iron, but more advanced than the Stone Age tools before. But this uh, Stone Age period, or Neolithic as it's known, and then later the Bronze Age period, before the Celts arrived, that is the period the stone circles were being built. And I usually just refer to that as the megalithic era after the stone circle builders. Well, you do see, uh, there was certainly was, me- if we say megalithic uh, in a wider sense of the term, there was megalithic building going on in many different parts of the world, from you know, the other side of the world. I mean, we can consider the Great Pyramids in Egypt as megalithic building large stone constructions. But pertaining particularly just to the British Isles, there was a time when Ireland, the landmass, was connected to uh, Scotland and the rest of Great Britain to some extent, when the landmass of Great Britain was connected to France. Uh, there's that uh, landmass on, now underwater known as Doggerland, for example. But this was many thousands of years before uh, the megalithic building phase that your book deals with. So I just wonder, to what, given that we do see some megalithic building in France, we can go and observe today uh, Karnak being a good example probably the primary one, but I'm wondering to what extent we're looking then at the British Isles being isolated and that this culture that seems to be in many ways quite unique to the islands grew up as a result of that isolation. Yeah, the period when Britain and Ireland were joined and in turn that was Britain was joined to continental Europe to what is now basically the Netherlands um, that was like that at the end of the Ice Age, the last Ice Age, which was around about 12,000 years ago. But then as the ice receded and the sea levels rose, uh, within a couple of thousand years, mainland Britain and Ireland had separated from each other and from the, from continental Europe. And in Britain, as well as elsewhere in Europe and other parts of the world, after the last ice age, there was a leap forward in the way that uh, people lived. Before this time, it's known as the Paleolithic period. In other words, the old Stone Age, when you've got hunter-gatherers, people using Stone Age weapons to live a kind of nomadic life, moving from place to place, following herds of animals or following the seasons for better, um, better food to uh to collect when you know going from one place to another in a nomadic way of life the period that follows that is when farming first starts and is is actually known originally as the mesolithic era the middle stone age people start to settle they develop farming techniques manage rather than to go to keep moving around to where the crops are, are are growing they start to grow them themselves and rotate farming so that crops coming to harvest at different times of the year and they start uh, using animals to, uh, domesticating animals so life changes in many parts of the world after the last ice age then you've got a period called the neolithic period when people start to settle more in larger communities settlements that in the middle east for example in egypt and in in mesopotamia what's now iraq people began to actually start to build the first cities and settle in very large numbers. 
But in Europe, it was still a kind of tribal form of existence, but people were settled. They didn't move around anymore. They built farming communities, villages of a few hundred or sometimes even a few thousand people uh, in an area would settle and farm and have quite a, a new hierarchy of society would develop. That's known as the Neolithic or New Stone Age. And in Britain and, and in uh, Europe generally, that starts around about 3500 BC. And it begins with the building of certain stone structures, the first megalithic structures, if you like, in Europe. And this is before the Great Pyramids, before the civilization builders of Egypt and the Middle East. And they start to build tombs for the dead or places where they could meet uh, as sort of underground temples, if you like, and also bury their dead. And these are known as long barrows. They were basically a series of stones that were placed in to form walls with a, a roof of stones over the top and then covered with mounds of earth. Um, and they're known as barrows or in Britain, long barrows, because they were longer than they were wide. And in the in in France and other places in Europe, this was happening just as it was happening in Britain. And quite a few people in Europe started to erect single or multiple stones, either in rows or in small collections or just single standing stones known as monoliths from the old Greek single stone. But what began to change in Britain, where the megalithic culture in Britain is different to the rest of Europe, is around about 3100 BC, they started to erect stone circles, of which obviously Stonehenge is the most famous. But it's this stone circle building which is unique to the British Isles. And there were probably as many as 5,000 of these stone circles, of which perhaps just over a thousand still survive today in various states of preservation, that were erected throughout the whole of the British Isles. And it's these stone circles. In France, they erected a lot of stone rows, um, great long avenues or rows of stones. And they also built quite big tombs, bigger than in Britain. But they didn't build stone circles. And that's what makes the megalithic civilization or culture of Britain unique for that time. Yeah, well, you mentioned the sheer number of circles that will have, will have existed at one point. And it's so interesting, so interesting to consider this phenomenon when we consider the lack of cities in the British Isles, as you also point out, or all, a lot of the trappings of civilization that we today uh, would consider, you know, to be the sort of benchmarks for what what does what constitutes a civilization, or what has the following things. You know, that didn't really exist, and they were living domestically the, this relatively primitive way. But there was it was almost like the zenith of their knowledge, their technology, that their efforts were being ploughed into. If I can sort of mix a metaphor, ploughed into the construction of these megalithic complexes. Yeah, it's fascinating because in a place like Egypt, you've got people all throughout. The, the nation of Egypt, which has put it all together. It's about the same size as the British Isles. Um, and they've got the same kind of tombs being built, the same kind of pyramids at the earlier period and so on. But that's a kingdom ruled by a king, a pharaoh. 
The same happens in in Mesopotamia, in the middle, in in Iraq. You've got the Sumer civilization, the later Babylonians, you know, in a large area building the same kind of structures. But that is a kingdom with a hierarchical structure. You've got all the trappings of civilization. You've got government. You've got people to keep the law, the the soldiers, if you like. You've got local um, administrators. You've got a civilization, so you've got a, one religion, if you like, that's being overlooked by a very firm um, structure of civilization. And they've got roads um, and ways of traveling between their various cities or towns. They've domesticated, uh, they haven't just domesticated animals for uh, agriculture, they've domesticated camels and later horses and, or, or, you know, you've got pack animals and people are able to travel around quite easily in these places. Britain was nothing like that. It's existed of uh, several many probably i mean celtic times i said there was perhaps about 40 tribes in this country there was probably 200 separate tribes if not more scattered throughout the british isles um and that and that's probably only the larger areas where you've got people working together most people were just in a small village which is probably not more than a family unit very much uh, a local clan if you like and these people were living separately. We know from the we don't know this from written records, but we know this from the from what archaeology has discovered. They were all living separately. They didn't have a road network. They didn't have a a single overall structure that we can that's left any discernible trace anyway of a of a single king or government ruling over everyone. Um, they were spread over a very large area of separate islands all you know they, a lot of these places are separated from each other not just by distance but by the sea and yet for a period of 2000 years or more they continued to build exactly the same kind of stone circles to exactly the same kind of plan and repaired them and built more and when new innovations took place, if they started to build stone circles with a slightly different um, arrangement, then that would happen throughout the country. It was almost as if it was somehow being controlled by an overall um, government or priesthood when there is no evidence archaeology, archaeologically that such organization existed in Britain. It was like a civilization without the trappings of civilization. So there wasn't centralized control. There may have been a local level, you know, sort of one or more people pulling the community together in this effort. But uh, there wasn't centralized control nationally or even regionally, but there must have been communication. And this is, of course, we contrast this with what I was speaking about earlier, about the general isolation of the British, British Isles. But these must have been peoples that peacefully coexisted. Certainly, I, I don't, you can maybe speak to this. I don't see any evidence that there was much in the way of conflict. But perhaps what the, the overarching control was then was an idea, you know, a purpose as opposed to an authority. Absolutely. I mean, they know archaeologically that there has been very little evidence found that these people had any kind of conflict, as you said. For, for a start, um, the later Celts, as I mentioned before, lived in fortified settlements because they were constantly fighting each other. 
There is no evidence of fortifications built around these settlements in the earlier stone circle building period. You um, you don't find in graves, although people buried their dead with grave goods, in other words, things that they possess in their lives, these didn't include weapons. They included only the sort of uh, tools or uh, spears and arrows and so forth suitable for hunting no evidence that they were used on a large scale to battle each other and there are no bodies have been found no skeletons have been unearthed or very very few where the people seem to have died from trauma trauma um uh, broken bones that sort of thing smashed skulls that you would find if people had been involved in battle there's virtually no evidence of this so the kind of archaeological bottom line for that period is they were very peaceful indeed. So whatever kind of authority was holding them together, it certainly wasn't force. Well, we have evidence across thousands of years of, as I mentioned earlier, all sorts of megalithic building, uh, huge stone constructions um, all around the world. And in many of the cases, whether they're tombs or whether they're temples or monuments, or some combination of the three, they're at the heart of the settlements, at the heart of that community, of that civilization. They're a sort of a focal point, if you will. And although people have theorized about different purposes for the megalithic circles in the British Isles, again, you know, as uh, solar or lunar observatories, uh, again, perhaps as temples as well, or just meeting places, whatever it happens to be, point here is that the circles are not at the heart of the settlements. They're set some distance away, often quite away, given that these are people who have been making their way around by foot. And that reminded me of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, which is dated to around about 10,000 BC. And this is an incredibly complex uh, stone construction, apparently done by, if not hunter-gatherers, then certainly by people who themselves did. It was not a city for people to live in, let's put it that way. So it's really interesting that these, these circles that we're discussing are not at the heart, physically at the heart of the settlements. It's fascinating because in virtually every culture, the temple or the main structures they built are at the heart of cities. Yes, you may get tombs out in the, out in the, uh, outside the towns and settlements, but t temples tended to be built where people can, where people met. It was a, a status symbol for a town or a, a settlement to have these things. But the stone circles are often built quite a way outside where people actually lived. Now, and perhaps I ought to just explain roughly the sort of setup of stone circles in the in, throughout the British Isles. Um, mo if you've got a small community, a small community of maybe a hundred or so people, a couple of hundred people maybe, they would have a stone circle made up of perhaps between 10 and 20 stones. And these stones would only be between three to four feet high, maybe not even that big. Some of them are only as high as two feet above the ground. Built in a circle, maybe between 20 to 50 feet across. Um, and this would be a, they, they wouldn't be a complicated looking thing like Stonehenge. They're basically just roughly shaped stones cut and then put into uh, pits that were dug in the ground in a, in a circle. So these stones, in order to keep standing upright, were usually whatever you see above the surface is usually two um, two thirds as much, no, a third as much again below the surface. So they're, they're quite. So if I say you're talking about a, a four foot stone, 
then you're really talking about a stone which is four foot above the ground and obviously there's quite a lot below the ground too so they cut these stones and they, they place them in these circles uh most of these ordinary stone circles or smaller stone circles that seem to have served smaller settlements also have what has been referred to by some people over the years as a king stone or sometimes a queen stone which is a single standing stone placed some distance outside the main circle but very often in line with the summer sun with the sunset or sunrise on important days of the year such as the midwinter's day the midwinter solstice in the middle of the winter when the the shortest day of the year or midsummer's day um when when the the longest day of the year so you have the so you stand in the center of the circle and on those important days let's say like midsummer sunrise the sun would rise over another stone that so-called kingstone placed just outside the main circle and this kind of uh, arrangement was common throughout the whole of uh, the british isles scotland ireland wales england and that as i say there were thousands of these all over the place if you've got a larger settlement um of maybe as many as a thousand people lived in some of these uh or a number of settlements in a in a close area you would tend to find that they had the resources then to build much bigger stone circles um the largest stone circle in the world or the what certainly in britain the oldest stone circle yet discovered in the world in is in england about 20 miles north of stonehenge it's called avebury uh it's about a thousand feet across in diameter it consisted of over a hundred stone some of them weighing up to 50 tons in a great big circle that now surrounds half a modern village and inside that circle there was other circles placed smaller ones um this stone circle uh, avebury is known as a henge circle because around it was dug a ditch with an embankment the the ditch and embankment are about 30 feet deep and about 30 feet high above the ditch so they're huge great things going all the way around this thousand foot diameter circle and this arrangement of a ditch and an embankment is known as a henge now some people have said in the past well these were probably built for defensive purposes but no if you're building something for defensive purposes you put the ditch on the outside of the embankment but these are built with the ditch deliberately on the inside of the embankment which would just make the whole thing pointless for defensive purposes and that is what a henge is an inside out defensive moat and embankment if you like and a lot of these much larger circles were built with these henge structures around them and there were dozens throughout the british isles uh, scattered all over the place and stonehenge actually gets its name after the uh this embankment and uh, ditch which surrounds the stones and so stonehenge was one of these although it is physically a lot smaller than avebury the people who lived near stonehenge probably at a settlement called durrington walls that's been excavated which was probably the largest settlement in britain of of, of a good few thousand people altogether lived in that area 
and others from smaller settlements around got together to build Stonehenge. And it seems as though they decided not to build a massive stone circle like Avebury and some of the other big henge monuments that are found throughout Britain, but instead decided to build something that looked really impressive. It's smaller, but it's built with stones that are really uh, precisely shaped and with a series of arches joining them together with lintel stones. And, and that's what makes Stonehenge unique. There aren't any other stone circles in Britain with those joined by arches. So um, Stonehenge is kind of is unique in as much as it has these arches, but it is one of the big henge monuments that were built for larger settlements. So that's basically the way that the, the, the structure of, of, of these stone circles was. So you've got like smaller stone circles supplying smaller settlements like a village church and you've got the henge monuments, which were like cathedrals. Well, maybe the lintel stones uh, is part of the reason why uh, Stonehenge has captured the popular imagination so much to the exclusion of so many other uh, megalithic complexes. But is it Stonehenge the one where the uh, henge is actually not really a henge because the ditch is actually outside the rampart? It's absolutely right. Stonehenge isn't actually a henge monument. It is the only henge, supposedly henge monument I know of, that actually has the ditch on the outside as if it had been built for defensive purposes. Um, but it's unlikely to have been built for defensive purposes because there's no evidence whatsoever about them ever building any kind of wooden stockade or anything on top of the embankment. So it seems to have some more um, ceremonial purpose than anything else. But it is actually built the way you would expect an, uh, an imba- um, a fortified place to be built. But it's probably because st- the Stonehenge ditch and embankment were built before the others. It seems to have been a pretty much a one-off. It might have been a prototype. And afterwards, for whatever reason, other settlements decided to build their henge monuments with the, for whatever reason, with the ditch on the inside. So Stonehenge is actually not really a henge monument. It's a, it's rather a one-off. Well, in one of my moments of more fanciful flights of thought, uh, I considered the possibility is if the ditch being inside the rampart is kind of the opposite of a defensive construction that would uh, keep something out, uh, was it built that way to keep something in? Now, that's a very interesting point. Did they believe that they were holding gods or spirits or something inside? Now, that's a good point. I, my own personal thought has been that it may have served some reflective purpose. If they filled these things with water, which they would have probably filled up with water anyway, um, whether they wanted them to or not, um, you'd have got this moat. And if you're standing inside one of these circles um, and you, you're looking at the sun outside or the stars or whatever, you see them reflected in this moat. That might have had some um, that might have been some purpose in that. Uh, but I don't know. In other words, if you had it outside the ditch, you couldn't see it. Um, so it might be from some kind of mirror purpose to reflect the stars. But you, you did say that uh, some of these stone circles, um, at least a lot of them, are uh, associated. People have thought of them as being astronomical calculators. Um, that basically means that it's not only that uh, certain stones 
aligned to the sun at particularly important times of the year. Archaeologists over the years have realized that not only Stonehenge, but many stone circles have had their some of their important stones placed where very uh, where particularly bright stars first rose over the horizon at a particular time of the year. So there does seem to be thinking about the the stars and the heavens when these stone circles were built. Um, you mentioned earlier as well that these stone circles strangely are built outside of the settlements. The reason for that, it would appear, is that they were they tended to be built on either plains or high land where the horizon could be easily observed from. Whereas if you're in a, a settlement, you're usually down in a valley by a river. You've got, you know, in other words, for transportation, for fishing, for for your water supply. You're not going to be usually stuck on an open plain or on the top of a hill. So it seems that they needed to build these stone circles where they had a clear view of the horizon. And the the the, the logical reason for that would be is because they were built as, if you like, observatories so that people could stand in these stone circles and view the stars, the sun, the moon. And by using the stones as sighting lines, if you like, were able to determine right, that star's in that position, therefore it must be this particular date. And so on this date, we need to do certain agricultural procedures, like this is the time to sow certain crops. So the idea in some archaeologists' minds has been that the stone circles may have served some sort of ceremonial or religious purpose, but they were primarily a practical construction whose purpose it was for the local people to determine various times of the year based on where the stars were as observed from where they were in relation to the stones you could determine dates for planting crops for harvesting reaping and so on and so forth and so therefore they were possibly astrological or astronomical calculators but certainly, for whatever reason they were built, they seem to have been built in places where you could observe the skies. Now, when you were surmising about the possibility of the, the ditch at Stonehenge being filled with water, you used the term reflect, and that made me think about sound, because some research and work has been done on the sonic properties of some of these locations and maybe even of the stones themselves I want, I've recommended this interview a few times but I did a show with a researcher called Paul Devereaux that's called Stone Age Soundtracks which is the title of one of his books and he looks exclusively at, at this in your work and research have you come across this idea that, that, that the sound properties of these locations might have been important? Uh, I haven't personally myself looked into that I've, I've heard people's ideas on it um it is very possible that if you stand in a stone circle and you're surrounded by water and you're chanting or singing some form of uh, ceremonial song then the water and the ditch around it is going to have an acoustic effect which is considered desirable to the to the particular culture involved it's like if you go to tibet you'll have the the monks 
with this deep chanting, which is nothing like we would find in a Christian church today, for example. And you'd have, you will have monks blowing these Buddhist prayer horns. Um, nothing like a church organ today. So something equally, uh, as, as different could have been going on in the stone circles with them drumming, with them singing, wailing, how, whatever they did that actually was affected by the, 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 the uh, embankment around the stones and by water there may have given a particular desired effect to the acoustics. So yeah, it's very possible. Well, this leads me to another thought. In your book, you talk about the, the so-called blue stones, which originally made up the part of the Stonehenge complex, and they famously were brought from a location in what's now Wales. And if the stones had certain special properties, perhaps sonic property being one of them, for example, in Paul Devereux's work, you can see videos of him tapping stones and getting sort of bell-like ringing sounds out of them. But anyway, that's uh, a topic for another day. But so maybe not only was location important, but the actual material that these stones were constructed from may have been important. Now, of course, there's evidence that as you move around the British Isles, that certain stone circles locally were constructed out of the stone that was found locally, which is why some are from different materials than others. But clearly, in at least one case, that being the original Stonehenge, this, the stones were considered important enough to transport halfway across the country. Um, a lot of people have said, well, how on earth did you do that? Did they drag them? Uh, you or put forward the idea that they're actually brought uh, by water, which would make a lot more sense. But also an idea that I hadn't read about before uh, crops up in your book, that the Stonehenge blue stones were possibly part of an, an, a stone circle that had been located in Wales, and it was simply migrated across to the, the location in, in what's now Wiltshire. Yes, it all goes back to where the stone circle culture began. Um, in Britain, the earliest stone circle anywhere is found on the Orkney Isles, just off the north coast of Scotland. It's a stone circle called the Stones of Stenness, and it was built about 3100 BC. And the stone circle building culture seems to have spread out from there, coming south, which is really interesting because a lot of people thought that it might have come across from France, for example, from Brittany, the, the idea came across from there. Um, but as I said before, there was no stone circle building there. There was no, nothing like the stone circles in Britain. Yes, they erected stones in rows and there's some massive stone rows at Karnak in Brittany and some really impressive monoliths, single standing stones, but they don't have the stone circles. That begins in the north of Britain in the Orkney Isles off the coast of Scotland and then spread south, which is really interesting because nobody quite knows why these people on the Orkney Isles suddenly started to build stone circles. But it moved down across, firstly, to the islands of Scotland, the Western Isles of Scotland, and then into Ireland itself. And within a 100 years, the stone circle building tradition had come back across from Ireland and into South Wales. So you've got it spreading down the western part of the British Isles, mainly through Ireland, through Ireland itself, and then into the south of Wales. Now, the stones, Stonehenge is built around about 
3000 uh, BC, the first Stonehenge. Now, that is about 100 years after it's, the Stone Circle tradition starts in the very north of Scotland. Now, most people know Stonehenge today as the one that's got all these lintel stones around it and the other big stones in the middle. But the very archaeologists now know that the original Stonehenge consisted of a much smaller structure, um, a stone circle with stones around. I think they were all together. I can't remember now whether it was 50 or 80, but there's quite a lot of stones in a circle um, of about 100 feet in diameter. And but the stones are about six foot high. They're not the big stones, which are up to 15 feet or more that are now there at Stonehenge. And these stones uh, on how did the archaeologists know this? Because they found the holes or they found the remains of, of the holes, which are later filled in over the years, which were dug in order to house these stones. And they were able to determine by digging the earth that had later filled these holes where the stones were by remains found in the soil, organic remains that they could carbon date, that these original holes of this original smaller stone circle date from around 3000 PC. They also know that those stained stones actually remain in Stonehenge today. And they are called bluestone. Um, they, they have a kind of bluish tinge if they're, if they're wet, but they're different to the other big stones of Stonehenge that were, were, were built from local sarsen sandstone. But the bluestones were later incorporated into the big Stonehenge that was built a few hundred years later than the original. And there's a horseshoe of stones, uh, stones in the middle of Stonehenge, which is believed to have, and another circle, which is believed to have been made of these original stones that stood in this original circle. How do they know this? Because they found chips and bits off of those stones at the bottom of these pits that, where the first stone circle was. Okay. So the interesting point about these blue stones which form the original smaller stone circle is that they're not found anywhere around where Stonehenge is in central southern Britain. The only place that matches the kind of stones found there, the blue stones at Stonehenge, is in the Preseli Mountains of South Wales. And so people have, have long known that the sto first stone circle at Stonehenge seems to have been quarried the stones for it were quarried in South Wales and brought all the way to central southern England, about 130 to 150 miles away. Now, it's only in recent years that the archaeologists have managed to find out exactly where these stones were quarried. And they found in South Wales and the Preseli Mountains the old megalithic quarries. They've even found stones that the people 5,000 years ago had cut out of the cliffside and then been trying to move and they'd obviously fallen over and broken and they were left there. So they've dug up stones that were going to be used to build the first Stonehenge, but had broken, had been left behind. And through geological analysis, they've been able to determine that this is exactly where these stones came from. But what's more interesting is... Very recently, archaeological work has been done with ground sensing radar 
and other geophysics techniques that shows that very near where this quarry is in South Wales, there was a stone, there had once been a stone circle. They were able to look at the ground and determine that there were holes dug in a circle around 100 feet across and that these holes match the same ones that are found at, sto at the, on the original Stonehenge site. So the thing, thinking is now that the original Stonehenge or the Blue Stone Circle was built in the Preseli Mountains of South Wales. And then when that culture decided to, well, for whatever reason, migrate or merge, migrate to middle, mid-South England or merge with the culture there, they decided to bring their stone circle with them and built the first Stonehenge. That concludes part one of our interview. Be sure to tune in next week for part two. If you enjoyed the show, check out the website, which is legalisefreedom.com. That's legalise-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programmes offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including politics and economics, energy and environment, culture, spirituality, history, and the nature of reality. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalisefreedom.com.